Church, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this evening. If you uh, want to turn there in your Bibles, if you take notes, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a gift tonight. I'm going to give you uh, the, the notes for you to kind of have an outline ahead of time. But I, I want to talk tonight about suffering, and I know that when I say that, you may go, ah. But here's my prayer. My prayer is that by the end of this sermon, you, like Paul, can say that you rejoice in your suffering you rejoice in your suffering. I was thinking about suffering all week. I always pray about the sermon that's coming up. I, I usually know nowadays, a month in advance, what scripture we're reading and, and things like that. And I was praying about suffering and, and uh, I was in the, I was coming home from Chestertown and I was getting close to, to the house and I had to use the restroom. And, uh, but I also had to get some groceries. And so I went into Food Lion and it never fails. I mean, maybe it's just me, but it never fails that when I, when you go into food line and you've got to get out quickly and you think, I'm going to get in and I'm going to get out, that's the day that they only have one register open and there's eight people in front of you checking out. And not only are there eight people, but you've got the, the person in front of you that seems like they waited six months to buy groceries and they're stocking up for the next six months. And so I'm sitting there and I'm standing in line like this. And I'm kind of like going like this and I'm carrying, because this is me, I, I'm kind of, I'm one of those dudes that like, I don't get a cart when I should get a cart. And so then I have like a case of water here and some cat food here and I'm standing like this and my legs are like this and I'm kind of going like this and I'm thinking, this is suffering. And I got a feeling though, all jokes aside, that many of us tonight have had a year and maybe even a, a span of years where it feels like suffering is unending whether it's the pandemic or it's finances or it's something with your job or with your family or with your friends. Uh, many of us have experienced suffering in one way, shape, or form in the past year, or maybe it feels like your entire life has just been nonstop suffering. Sometimes when I really uh, kind of woe is me, when I have some of those moments, I think about it. You know, like I think about times where both my grandmas passed away in the same year, and then my aunt not long after that got cancer and passed away at an early age, and or the tornado we were in where this family died, or when little man was so sick or when we had the, the when we lost the second child and all these things and, and sometimes I sit down and I go man I have suffered and then I read Paul's words in Romans chapter 5 chapter 5 verses 3 through 5 where he says more than that we rejoice in our suffering and sometimes I hear that and I think and if I'm honest Paul you lost your mind there man Look, the first four chapters of Romans, you were good. And like the ones after that, they made pretty perfect sense in some ways. But listen, right here, this part, I don't know what you were thinking. How in the world could anyone rejoice in their suffering? Their suffering must look entirely different than mine. I begin to wonder like, what was going on with you, Paul? Or I read James where he says that, that we count our trials as, as joys, that we, we rejoice in our trials because they grow us. And there's all this idea that suffering brings joy and rejoicing. And I read it and I'm like, I think about some things and I go, I just don't get that. But again, my prayer tonight is that by the end of this sermon, we can say we rejoice in our suffering. If you're a note-taking person, we're going to tackle three objectives tonight when it comes to suffering. The first is to acknowledge that it exists. The second is to tackle to some degree as much as we can in a short sermon, why does suffering exist? And finally, to measure what is our reaction as Christians to the concept of suffering. We're going to do that in three segments. First, suffering is inevitable. 
Suffering is inevitable. It's going to happen. Second, suffering and how we address it matters. It matters that we acknowledge that it exists. And third, we have to learn how to rejoice in our suffering. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Church, as we dive into this word, I want to give a warning. Now, you know me. You know that sometimes I have too big of a mouth, and sometimes I can be a little bit uh, I can be a little bit uh, too upfront, uh, but I, I do want to give you a warning because I, I want to be honest. Sometimes we read God's word and we read our interpretation and we read our experiences and what we know now into it. <clears throat> so I'm going to warn you off the bat that when you read Mark chapter 8, you are reading Mark chapter 8 most likely from a, a perspective where you know that Jesus died on the cross. And you know, or <clears throat> at least in theory know, that Jesus was resurrected. And so when you read this, you're going to have a temptation to hear what the disciples do and how they respond and to judge them. I'm just going to be honest. None of us in here judge people, do we? But when you read this, you're going to have a temptation to judge the disciples because what they're going to hear is what you know tonight, and they're going to get really upset about it. And the temptation, as modern-day readers of God's Word of, a, of an ancient text, the temptation is to read it and think that we would have done better. But I just want to warn you that you probably would not have. I love you. I believe in you. I have faith in you guys. I love you. I, I, you have so many gifts and talents. But I believe that you probably would have been very similar to the disciples. Let me show you what I mean. Mark chapter 8. The context is that Jesus has just for the first time had his disciples, in particular Peter, understand that he's not just some good teacher. He is the Messiah. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, the, the loud one, speaks up and says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You're him. You're the one we've been waiting for. We figured it out. You are the expected Savior of the people of Israel. You're the Messiah. And so there's this big expectation as they figure it out that the Messiah has come and now that they know it's, everything's going to be okay. Sam and I were talking about earlier, one of the things I love about the Gospel of Mark is it's, it's straight to the point, it's action-oriented, but here's one of the things about Mark's Gospel. Mark is very careful to point out that Jesus, up to chapter 8, doesn't want anyone to know who he is. You see it in encounters like where Jesus casts a demon out of someone or heals someone. He's very careful. He speaks to the demons who know who he is. Don't say a word. They can't know yet I'm the Messiah. When he heals people, he says, listen, go from here, be healed, but don't tell anyone what has happened. And of course, they do it anyway. But there's this idea that Jesus is not ready for the world to know who he is. And so Mark chapter 8 brings us to this big crescendo where all of a sudden Jesus is okay with people knowing he is the Messiah. But the big shock, the biggest shock is not that he lets that news out. It's what he says about it afterwards. That's where we come into Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. The word of God says that Jesus began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You know, church, in the Bible, one of the things that we should practice in reading Scripture is that no word was placed there arbitrarily. 
When Jesus says that he was the son of man, there's a reason that he says I am the, he uses the son of man to identify himself rather than the Messiah, Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace, any of those other names. He says the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Now, son of man comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's a prophecy that Daniel is given, and we learn that the son of man is indicating, pointing to this Messiah. But Jesus identifies himself most often as son of man, and there's a reason. You see, the Jewish people had built up an expectation of what Messiah meant. And so if Jesus said that the Messiah must suffer many things, that would have been an extra obstacle because Messiah in their minds meant someone who would come in, a political ruler, a military ruler, who would come in and take an oppressed Israel and rescue them from their oppression by power and by force and by kingly rule and set things right and bring peace to the people of Israel. And so Jesus chooses not to identify as Messiah, but as Son of Man, and teaches that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now here's where I said we're going to have to fight not to judge the disciples. This is time number one that Jesus tells his closest companions who have spent a great deal of time with him. This is the first time that he looks at them and says, now that you know I'm the Messiah, you need to understand that I'm going to be killed and rise on the third day. This is time number one that he predicts his death. Before it's all said and done, Jesus would have to predict his death three times, and they still wouldn't fully understand it. In fact, we see the the heaviest fight against it right here in this scripture. But for now, let's stay right here. The Son of Man must suffer because of the fall of man. The Son of Man must suffer. Now, we hear that today and we know. Jesus died on the cross. We get it. Most, many of us, we grew up in America, so at some point you've probably heard the gospel. And if not, trust me, you're going to hear it tonight and you're going to have an opportunity to respond to it. But for them, this would have sounded crazy. The Messiah is going to suffer. And what I want you to hear first tonight is this. Suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. Not only do we suffer, but now Jesus is saying, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am also going to have to suffer with you. Suffering is inevitable. You cannot avoid it. Here's why that's important. It's not only important for you to understand as you live your life, because you're going to hit suffering, but there's a world out there that is looking at you, they're watching you to see, are you avoiding all suffering, or are you approaching suffering differently? It's inevitable. And church, I think it's time that we begin to learn how to answer people's questions about Jesus. And I'm going to be up front with you, it's no longer enough to speak to a postmodern, post-Christian world when they ask you something about your faith for you to respond because the Bible says so. Take me into God's word and show me why the Bible says what it says. Show me what it says. Know your word. And one of the biggest questions the world has for you, whether you realize it or not, is if God is good and God is real, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there evil? How can a good God allow this much suffering? It's out there. 
And church, the days are over where we can avoid that question. Suffering is inevitable. You need to know how to answer that. And in this, in this passage, the gospel begins to be laid out. It's like a blueprint, and we begin to learn to, the answer to that question. The answer is that suffering exists because of the fall of man. Hear me out. There's a reason that God cannot just wipe away suffering. And guess whose fault it is? It's not God's. This is the gospel. Listen, the reason that the Son of Man had to suffer was because of us. Take it back to the beginning. Think about it. God created this creation, and he placed humankind in it to be in a perfect, loving covenant with their creator. And he said, you're going to have dominion over the earth, and there won't be sickness. There will not be sadness. There will not be death. There will be no tears. Even labor will be enjoyable. You have this opportunity to be in perfect covenant with me, and there will be no suffering. But because God sought a covenant of love, there also had to exist this little thing called choice. Now, take or leave what you believe about free will, but I believe that love requires choice. If I had the ability to overpower you and work you like a puppet, and I wanted you to love me, and I looked at Colin, and I could fully control Colin, I said, Colin, you got to love me. He can do whatever he wants, but that's not love. And so God placed us in this covenant, and he said, listen, I've got to leave a choice for you to not be in relationship with me. And so you can eat of anything in this garden, but there's this one tree, and if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Now listen, there wasn't necessarily, it's not about the tree itself, it's the idea that humankind had the option to not obey God and to not be in relationship with God. It was a choice. Many of us know the story. Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us that Eve's in this garden. She's near this tree, and the serpent comes and says, listen, did God really say that if you eat it, you'll die? And we can point fingers at the serpent all we want, at Eve all we want, but the story goes that Eve took of the fruit, and she ate it, and she convinced Adam to do the same. And in that moment, not because God didn't love us or because God is some evil punisher, but because we chose to break the covenant God had made, suffering entered the world. And it didn't just enter you and I, it entered all of creation. The bushes began to have thorns, and the work was difficult, and the childbearing was painful, and everything in God's perfect creation was corrupted because we chose to disobey God. And because of that, and because of God's character, God is love, God is life, God is truth, God is just, God is all these things, and he is unchanging. And we can want in our hearts to break any of those things, but God will not break those things. God is love, and God is just, and because he is just, he can't look at a people who actively chose to disobey them and just wipe the slate. Then he would no longer be just, he would no longer be fair. And so the problem began that suffering had entered creation, and now God, all throughout Scripture, this entire book, I've said many times, is not about you. It's about God, and it's the story of a loving God and a just God working in love and justice to bring redemption to humankind that chose to obey them. 
From Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of God speaking into human suffering and disobedience and making a way for us to be reunited with our creator who made this covenant with us. That is the story of scripture. And you begin to see this trend that I want to talk about tonight. You see it as early as Genesis 3. We've said it many times where Adam and Eve are naked and God says, what have you done? And they've covered themselves with fig leaves, but it's not enough. And God slays animals to cover them with blood. And all the way from there, you see this idea that God is working to redeem his people and you see this trend of God taking suffering that we brought on ourselves and turning it to good. Look at Genesis chapter 50. There's a man many of us know named Joseph. And the story goes that Joseph had, a, had brothers that he had ticked off because he was the favorite. And so the brothers sold him into slavery. And he became the slave of a, a, the most high house in Egypt. And he gets in trouble there. He's falsely accused and thrown into prison. And all these terrible things happen to Joseph. He suffers in many ways, but by God's providence ends up as second in command in Egypt. And there comes a time where Joseph's same brothers that caused all this suffering for him come to Joseph and they think, oh no, we have caused him to suffer. Surely he is mad. Surely he's going to kill us. We better come to him and beg for his forgiveness. And Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says this, as for you, you meant evil against me and God meant it for good. You meant to harm me, but God meant it to good, for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Remember what I said about nothing in Scripture is arbitrary. This is who God is. This is how he works. You meant it for evil. Suffering is all around me, but God took that suffering and turned it to good so that many could be kept alive today. Suffering is inevitable, so it matters that we address it. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, and it was shocking. But I need you to understand tonight that God must operate in this way. Without suffering, you would not be saved. Let me dive deeper in that. Verse 32 says this. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter, one of his closest disciples, pulls Jesus, imagine this in your minds, pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, listen, I heard you, man. This Messiah thing, I get it. Like, I, I know you're the Messiah. I believe in this. But listen, look, the Messiah, I don't know if you know this, but the Messiah is supposed to, supposed to conquer the Messiah is supposed to be powerful. The Messiah is supposed to bless us. The Messiah is supposed to make things better. And now you're going around and you're talking all this stuff about suffering and dying. And I'm not sure you really understand what Messiah means. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't take Peter and grab him by the shoulder and lead him away from the campfire, away from everyone else, and put his arm around him and say, Peter, listen, I heard you, you know, on second thought, Messiah, you know, the suffering thing, it all sounded gruesome anyway, not really into it. You're right. Let's just go conquer. And there's a reason that Jesus doesn't just gently put his arm around Peter and rebuke him back gently and say, Peter, listen, buddy, you're just a little bit confused. Let me explain it to you. 
No, the Bible says that Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. Now hear that. He turned and looked at, not Peter, looked at his disciples. That tells us that this was a human heart condition. This message was for the disciples as much as Peter, but Peter was just the loudmouth that spoke it out. But Jesus looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the mind, the mind you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, now listen, I, I know if anyone in here is following the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that has flowers around his garment and, and tr- frolics through the flowers, this is going to be difficult for you. Because when you initially hear that, you think, man, Jesus, that was harsh, man. Get behind me, Satan. You're calling somebody Satan. Like, what's up with this? But I want you to know tonight there is a very valid reason that Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. It is the real deal. There is a, and Jesus wasn't just grumpy that day. And let, let me explain to you why I believe that is. Peter had allowed Satan to deceive him. And I want to be super clear on something tonight. Many of us, when we think of the devil and we think of how Satan works and the enemy and how this goes in our life, we expect him to kind of make us sick or harm us or take our jobs or, or do these, just these volatile acts that hurt us. And what I want to share with you tonight is that the devil really doesn't have to do that because you do enough of that for yourself. We introduce suffering. I'm not saying he can't do that. I'm saying that that's not primarily how Satan works. See, because his job is not to make you suffer in the temporary. That's not his primary goal. His primary goal is to draw you away from the truth. That's how he operates. And so Satan doesn't win by getting you to feel sick or by getting you to lose your job or by losing a loved one or all these terrible things. All Satan has to do to win is to deceive you from believing in Jesus Christ in the full gospel. That's it. His only objective is that when it's all said and done, he knows he's defeated, and he wants to take as many of you down with him as he can. And what's tricky about that is sometimes we think that the, the where he's winning the most is out there on the streets, and I'm here to tell you tonight that unfortunately, where Satan is winning the most is probably in the church. When it's all said and done, my concern, my fear, and I know I sound like I'm a doomsday preacher, but hear me out. Listen, my concern is that when it's all said and done, the folks that get to the the gates of judgment, they get there to those streets, and and the Lord is looking at us and saying, look, well done, my good and faithful servant, or I don't know you, you worker of iniquity. My concern is that more people in the church are going to be turned away than people that are on the streets. At which point, I'm going to feel like I failed. A lot of us are going to feel like we failed. I'm concerned about that, and I want to preach as much as I can. Listen, church, know know how the enemy works. Be true to the word of God. Hold on to it for dear life. Don't stray. Don't stray. It's truth, and it's the only truth. It can't be diluted. It can't be changed. It can't be added to. It can't fit your fancies and your whims. It's not meant to make you feel good about yourself. It's meant to point to Jesus Christ and him alone. And so the reason Jesus looks, and I promise, I'm going to encourage, I promise, but listen, the reason that Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, 
is because in that moment, Peter lost the idea of how he would actually be saved and began to desire something that was more comfortable for him. And in that moment, he was deceived from the truth that was Jesus Christ and that is of Satan. It's that simple. It happens that quick. The way of Satan, look, look, Satan wins the most if he gets you to believe in escapism. You know that person. We all know that person. Listen, don't you dare point to anybody in this room. But we all know that person that avoids negative emotions. That the house could be tumbling down, and as long as there's a bed, they're going to sleep in it that night because they're going to pretend that everything is fine. Now, we have people all across the gamut. There are folks that are, you know, everything's a concern. They're worried about everything. They're stressed about everything. They, they panic at everything. But then we all know those people that they are escapists. Like, there are no negative emotions. I remember a mentor of mine that I'm working with him, and, man, he was just always positive, and, and everything was good. And it was like every day was just sunshine and rainbows. And then I remember we lost someone that was like a negative, negative, that's not a word, uh, uh, just a major death in our church and in our community. And it felt like everything just shattered. And when all the suffering came crashing to a head, I looked at my mentor, and, and I saw that, oh, my goodness, like what happened to this positivity? And I want to give this person credit because they turned to Jesus and I learned in that moment they knew what suffering was. It may have been hidden well, but they knew what suffering was. Suffering is inevitable and so it is, it is vital that we approach it and address it as part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine this, there's a time in scripture, we call it Palm Sunday today, but Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the, the people are greeting him as they come in as a king that's entering the city, and they're laying out these, these, uh, the, the palms of, in front of him and their cloaks, and they're making a way like he's royalty. And we see Jesus coming in, and he's about to enter into the passion, but nobody really knows that. And so they begin to shout, make him king, make him king, make him king. What's happening there is there is the Jewish, ex Jewish expectation that the Messiah was to be their ruler and rescue them. And so when they see Jesus, the Bible says they try to make him king by force. And we see Jesus avoid this and, and veer away. And I, I want you to, to understand, listen, Jesus became incarnate. He's God incarnate. He took on the flesh of humanity. The Bible says he became a servant for our sakes. He felt, he cried. Think about Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. One of the most impactful verses in the entire Bible because we learn that Jesus felt the way that we feel. And so understand that as our Savior is riding into Jerusalem, and everyone is shouting, hey, make him king, make him king. Let's lift him up. Let's bring him into the city as our ruler. Let's let him conquer. He could have done it. He could have avoided that whole garden episode where he's crying tears of blood because of the agony of realizing he was about to drink the cup that contained God's wrath in its entirety. He could have avoided it all right there on Palm Sunday. He could have said, you know what? I don't want to suffer after all. Let's just go with the king route. And what you've got to understand is I believe that Jesus, he could have led Israel to have peace 
and to be free from oppression. He could have restored the kingdom of Israel and they could have had their rightful land back and things would have seemed really good. He could have escaped all the suffering. But at the end of the day, what would happen is a little need would be addressed, but the sin of all humanity would not. Suffering was necessary to offer us salvation and praise the Lord that Jesus didn't avoid it. So church, my message for you tonight is that we cannot avoid it either. Our response and reaction to sin matters. It would be very easy tonight to just read the first part of the scripture and avoid the last. Because Jesus follows his rebuke of Peter in verse 34 with this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now listen, it can be easy to read this and go, you know, Jesus was talking to his 12. They all died gruesome, brutal deaths. That's not what the Bible says. It says he called the crowd along with him, all of them, to say, hey, you know how I said I'm about to suffer and die and go to my death? Well, I'm here to tell you, you're going to do that also. You have to take up your cross and follow me, deny yourself, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Church, what I want to call you into tonight is the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. This is what our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is inviting us into. And it involves suffering, but hear this. This is the encouraging word. Understand what this means. This message is that the triune God, think about it. God the Father sent the Son to become flesh, to suffer on the cross where not only would he endure a physical death, but all the sins of all humanity were piled on him. You'll know my favorite uh, piece of poetry from Leonard Ravenhill is that point where he says, you know, just imagine that tomb as the soldiers rolled it across and Satan said, ah, there's the, all right, the stone, that'll hold him. And the demons are saying, yeah, the stone, that should be good. And Satan is kind of nervous and he says, well, how about this? Let's stack all the sins of the entire world against the stone as well. And the demon said, yeah, that should be great. And Satan says, no, nah, no, nah, let's, let's pile them all on, everything, everything past, present, future, every sin that's ever existed, pile it against the stone. There's no way he'll be able to come out now. And the second day struck, and we approached the third, and Satan's beginning to sweat, and we all, we all thinking, ah, even the disciples, oh, no, he's there, he's got the guards, he's got the stone, he's got all the sins that have ever been committed or will be committed. They're all stacked there. There's no way he can overcome this. The third day strikes, and Satan begins to look at his watch, and he says, 10, 9, 8, 7. The demons begin to celebrate and pop champagne and throw in a party prematurely in five, four, three, two, one. And out of that suffering, out of that tomb, came freedom. 
Church, it was empty. Do you understand what that means in that moment? Listen, I don't care that it was 2,000 years ago. I don't know what happened to you. Look, you, you guys that have kids in here, I know it's a wonderful moment. When you got married, special day, it really was. But I want you to hear me. What happened 2,000 some years ago when that tomb was empty is far better than anything else you've ever experienced. That was glory. That was the moment that your entire life changed. That was the moment that damnation was taken away from you. That was the moment that you went from death to life. That was the moment that the devil was defeated forevermore, and it changed everything for you. But it came from a moment of suffering. The Father sent the Son, and the Son took all this sin upon Himself and suffered not only physically, but spiritually and emotionally. And the Father shared in the suffering as He witnessed His only Son die upon the cross, and the Spirit manifested this suffering and used it to transform us into new life. The triune God interacted and shared in our suffering. And in that moment, he invited us to suffer with him. We said at the beginning, suffering is inevitable. But listen to this. You're going to suffer one of two ways. You either suffer in Adam or you suffer in Christ. Those are the only options. And I'm here to tell you tonight that if you choose to suffer in Adam, there is no reward. If you choose to suffer the way of humankind from the fall on and you choose to take part in that, there is nothing coming for you. There's no reward for your suffering. There's no plus that's coming later. There's no blessing afterwards. There's nothing for you if you choose to suffer with Adam. Just death. This is why we rejoice in suffering. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Listen to me. Listen, I know, I know it's hard. Look, this has been, this has been a year. Oh, man, I'm so ready for the pandemic to be over. I'm so ready for just things to maybe not go back to normal, but, but to get to some semblance of where we were where we can gather without masks and love on each other. And I'm missing the prayer times that we have where we lay hands and, and pray for healing and deliverance. I'm missing getting to do events in the community where we can really be close to each other and share meals. I'm missing all these things. It's been a year of suffering, and our suffering is nothing compared to others in other countries and things like that. But listen, I know it's been tough, but what I want you to hear is it's nothing compared to what God is offering you. This is why we rejoice, because we no longer share in suffering by the way of Adam. We share in suffering by the way of Christ. That moment when the tomb was empty, the celebration that should still affect our hearts all the way to this day, that's what we share in. Hear me, church, God didn't do this. This wasn't an afterthought where, okay, hey, he's presenting you hope in the future. No, listen, he died for you then. It's done. It's done. Your salvation is not something you are working towards or waiting on. It's done. And one day it's going to be consummated in glory and you're going to experience eternal life with the Father. And just trust me, when you get there, I can promise you, you will not be in heaven going, oh, remember that time that I lost my grandparents? Remember that time my son was sick? Remember that time I lost my second child? Remember that time that I was just being made fun of at work and persecuted for what I was doing? And remember that time that, that things got really hard? You're not even going to be doing that, trust me. 
It's going to be nothing but joy. You won't remember a moment of this suffering. And so I just want to encourage you tonight to listen to what the Word of God says and rejoice in your suffering knowing that you are in Christ Jesus and you have hope beyond hope that you cannot even imagine whatever you think in your mind right now about what eternity is going to look like. Trust me, it's going to be better. So hold on. Hold tight. Be lifted up. Rejoice in your suffering and know the world watches you as you do. 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16 says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What Peter says there is, listen, there is a difference in suffering as an unbeliever, as a sinner, than suffering in Christ. There is an actual difference. So let none of you suffer as these things, but suffer carrying the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that our God has suffered with you and has made the way for eternal glory. Amen? Amen. I want to invite you tonight to know that this is real in your life, to know that there is a cross that old rugged cross where your salvation was bought. Know that he is not just your Lord. He's not just asking to be your Lord and to be your Savior. He is your Redeemer. And what that means is you were bought at a price. It cost something. It wasn't free. It's free for you. It wasn't free for him. You were bought at a price. And that price is worth whatever you have to go through from here on out. Trust me. I'm going to lead us in prayer in a moment. I want you to just take this opportunity. If there's anyone with us in person tonight or online, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. And listen, there's nothing magical about this prayer. Only by faith in Jesus Christ are you saved. True faith. But I'm going to ask you, if you pray this with me, whether it's online or in person, to just let me know. You don't have to, I'm not going to raise your hand or call you to the front or anything like that, but I want you to let me know so that we can plug you in to be disciple, to grow in your faith. It doesn't have to be here. It can be anywhere that is a Bible-believing, gospel-teaching church or group of believers. But we want you to take your faith seriously. I leave you with this quote from Martin Luther. If we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day after the sentence has been pronounced not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. Count it all as lost, because what you've gained in Christ Jesus is far greater. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for this time in your word. And God, we thank you for every soul, Lord, in this room that has already turned to you. God, I thank you that at some moment in our lives, Lord, you spoke the gospel into our lives. Lord, you, you shared this message with us, and we chose to place our faith in you. And God, I thank you for each person, Lord, the sound of my voice right now that's going to pray this prayer. I thank you because the angels in heaven will be throwing a celebration at a child who's come home. And I don't want to take that lightly. And so Lord, I pray over the person right now that hears the gospel message and wants to place their faith in you to pray this with me. I am a sinner in need of salvation. 
place my faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for my sins. And I place my faith in the resurrection that on the third day he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death forevermore. And God, I accept new life in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our salvation. Lord, we pray that not a day goes by that we don't wake up and draw breath with new excitement and new gratitude for what you've done for us. Strengthen us, Lord, embolden us to suffer with rejoicing, knowing what is to come. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.